BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, podcast listener. Have you ever been listening to Wizard and the Bruiser and thought to yourself, I wish I could see just how fat Jake and Holton are in real life? Don't lie. We know all about your weird inside thoughts, listeners. Well, now you can make that dream a reality because Wizbrew and Page 7 are going on tour. Austin, Dallas, Milwaukee, Chicago, Minneapolis, D.C., Philly, Brooklyn, San Francisco, L.A. Nowhere is safe from an all-new show we're calling Release the Butthole Cut. Ew. Come join your fellow LPN fans for a night of pop culture chaos that's fun for the whole family, assuming your family consists of equally broken weirdos in their 30s. It's going to be a blast. Tickets are on sale right now at lastpodcastnetwork.com. Go, go now. There's VIP meet and greet passes available as well in case you want to get, you know, a little extra close, uh, especially personal. I legally have to clarify that there is no sexual element involved. I mean, unless, you know. Okay, cheese chick. All right, stop winking. All right, buddy. It's page seven and Wizard and the Bruiser live. Go to lastpodcastnetwork.com for dates and tickets. Not gonna do the accent from the movie. Hey, it's me, everybody. It's the Black Panther. Yeah! <laughs> and it is me, your lovable man ape, Jake. <laughs> and I'm a wizard. And Jake, you're a bruiser. Yeah, and we're bruiser. here to talk about Black Panther. And I'm gonna try not to cry. I'm gonna try not to cry about it. Holden, what is what would you possibly find tragic about an actor that was universally beloved who had thoroughly paid his dues and languished in near obscurity for decades only to reach the height of his career and be rewarded for his efforts uh, only to have all of that taken from him at an all too young age? Why would that for some reason make you weep? Oh, I don't know. Or like, what would make me upset about like literally everyone saying that he was like the nicest <laughs> guy <laughs> and like yeah. made like a whole community of people's like 
dreams come <laughs> true. And then, and then it was just ripped away from them tragically during like one of the saddest years ever. I don't know what would make me get weepy about it. But um, yeah, it was definitely, uh, we were a weird row, Jackie and I, going to do the last podcast of the left live shows to fill in for Marcus on the airplane because I'm sitting there crying about Chadwick Boseman because I'm doing research on him on the plane. And then uh, Jackie's right next to me. She's crying because she's watching that fucking Marcel the Shell with Shoes on oh. movie, which is needlessly tragic, uh, apparently. Just everyone's dies in that one. No, we so, talked uh, about It was a we, weird one. Hold on. We talked about this. They don't make the screwball comedy anymore. So you have to make, if you're a comedian and you're making a movie, you have to make it darkly tragic or indie or weird <laughs> or something to prove that you can make a movie. That's like how they do it now. <laughs> Well, if there's one thing I know people did react well to, it was me crying during the Twitch episode. So maybe <laughs> this is your shit. And if if so, there will probably be some hold. Uh, uh, I can't even mimic. Uh, uh, you know, that crackle pop that uh, happens from a man crying, trying to read a quote mm-hmm. about a guy's death. Uh, you'll probably get there later on the episode. But this whole story is fascinating, Jake. This whole rundown. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, hey, it's it's even it's and it all comes back around. It's two white guys talking about it. You know, at the end of the day, it was created by white people. It was, you know, it was it's this weird issue in the MCU, I think, has in general where there's no just like purely like black or, p- or any person of color created character or not many, not mm-hmm. not none of the big hitters at the very least. Um, so it, it's always going to have to come from an origin point of white creators and then eventually I'm not not necessarily unoppressed white creators you know because a lot of the comics creators are and were Jewish you know it's not like it was completely but still I'd you know what you're, I mean you're you're doing an incredibly deft and heartfelt job at explaining something that like the core audience of American comic books started as this like enclave of weird like uh just just socially misbegotten white males and like any attempt to expand that universe uh, has to, at the very least, try to placate or at least try to um, get those people on board. Because if you try and just veer away from that core audience, it doesn't get any traction. And so the Black Panther has this weird dual-edged kind of thing where it took like 50 years for the character's intended audience to like truly reach uh, its actual kind of goal, which was to tell an empowered story of a black skinned hero who can like sit amongst the mythological gods that have filled our modern American pantheon. And, you know, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee understood that that's where, you know, that there was a void and wanted to fill it. You know, they were not, they did not have, they were not in the right time and place to do it, but we live in a world now where the number one movie in America is this character, and it is celebrated throughout the world by all different kinds of people, and it's, it was a very interesting, bumpy road for it to get to that place. Yeah, for sure, And but it got there, and it got there 
with an incredible director, an incredible actor. And it truly is, you know, because I think that we can all look at look at the MCU as a whole and we see certain films that feel like they're a bit elevated, a bit on another level. Mm -hmm. I would probably throw uh, Thor Ragnarok in that category, maybe Mm -hmm. even, um, you know, Avengers um, Infinity War. Uh, into that category um, and I would definitely throw Black Panther in there and I was very b- pleased to see that I was right in that feeling because you look at the director the director pulled his own people in he's a prestige director who had who had made a name for himself with uh, stuff like Fruitville Station and then moving on to show he could like do bigger Hollywood stuff with Creed which was also fantastic um, you know and and so he and and he was the rare situation where he was like I want my editor I want my cinematographer I want all of my people from these great projects I've been I've been putting out you know to come in instead of using your in-house guys and it shows Mm -hmm. and so for me like my and I I bring all this up is my I think my gush is more towards the film Uh, I think that you know that movie is just great and I really enjoyed rewatching it again too to to just just reestablish that fact in my mind. Not not a bit not as big, you know, on terms of the comics. I uh, just got it getting to know uh, the comic run and all the good stuff. And one of my favorite things about Wizard and the Bruiser is that it actually gets me going back and reading some <laughs> of the best runs on these staple comic book characters that are so beloved. And this was no different. I mean, there's just so many great. There's there's or there's a few. Great great just really strong takes on the character by different writers and you know and also to talk about black panther is to put him uh that character on the backdrop of you know cultural revolutions in this country and uh you know the film actually did that and back in the day and interestingly enough or or maybe this kind of is like oh of course yeah that would make sense knowing you know the creators behind it and everything but at first he was like oh uh, you know he was he was put out like right around the time of the of the civil rights movement this character came out but they were also like yeah but he's like a part of this like fancy uh, african kingdom and so so uh, he's not like, uh, you know, punching cops yet or anything yeah. like, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And like, he doesn't care about all this stuff going on over here, which is a weird, weird dance. Well, and they oh, finally God. rectified that so, in later years. I mean, almost from the get go with that character, because it really is. Uh, there's like a lot of awkward fits and starts for the character. So like basically for decades, people would be like, hey, why is this, uh, you know, why is the only prominent black superhero not talking about the injustices and the uh-huh. challenges of the black uh, experience in America? He should be hanging out and like dealing with those problems. And then another five years would go by and people would be like, hey, this guy is the king of an all powerful African nation that never knew the uh, horrors of colonialism. Why is he like working with social workers in Harlem get like, and just that cycle uh-huh. would go back and he would keep bouncing back and forth being like, I'm uh, aloof in my country of cool cyber Panthers. I got to go to the streets where things are real. And then he'd be like, <laughs> I'm getting caught up in like, a, there's like a, there's a PCP ring at a high school. I'm the king <laughs> of a magical country. What am I doing here? Yeah. I got to go back yeah. to Wakanda. And that, and that is, that is a symptom of, of the initial inception, right? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. the dance that they were trying to do. Literally the Black Panther party uh, yeah. was established like a year after the character or something like that. And it is very, 
it is arguable whether or not they were actually inspired by some of that in some ways. I'll get into that in just a little bit. Some people argue that they were aware of a movement involving a Black Panther as the sigil for the movement. We'll talk about it. But it is just a weird one with all that. Yeah, it's like both... It's doing so much of what we're even seeing now with the MCU and, and uh, you know, all these characters coming out in the cinema where they're like, it's all about this political stuff. And at the same time, it's not because we need your Disney bucks mm-hmm. so bad. So we can't push too hard on this or that. Very fascinating, uh, for sure, this this character history. Do you have a bit of a gush before we get into it? I just, you know what? I was one of those disinterested, like, uh, insecure little white kids in the 90s. And I never really got into the character. He was always there. He was always cool. The idea of Wakanda was an interesting idea. But, like, I never really bought the books. And he was always kind of just a a background player for a lot of times. Uh And it wasn't until the 2000s where a lot of the work that uh, Christopher Priest kind of laid out there in his Marvel Knights line that all of a sudden he was, like, in the Illuminati. And he was, like, actually this, like, instill this this intimidating and, like, awe-inspiring presence within the Marvel Universe because of what he represented uh, was like actually kind of taken as serious and not as like just a weird mix of jungle tropes like turned on their head. And so uh, I I admit it wasn't until the original movie uh, came out that I finally like picked up a couple of old comics. And, you know, now he is as important of a Marvel character as Iron Man, as uh, Captain America, which actually now that I'm saying it, the idea that Iron Man is a top-level hero alongside Black Panther is something that would have mm. seemed crazy uh, yeah. to my childhood self back in the day. For sure, for sure. And I think so much of that has to do with the actors who portrayed those characters oh, yeah, in yeah, cinema yeah. that that pushed them over, and and the, you know, <laughs> and the directors that and the directors that came in and made them like staples. What were you laughing about? Just the idea that like Marvel really turned their shit around. When like, it was just like, hey, hey, you know, what if instead of like uh, Ben Affleck, we cast actors people like, (laughs) you know, just people that you see them on screen and you go, I like that person. (laughs) Even if you don't recognize their name initially, we just are like, we find people that people, other people look at them on a big, they (laughs) see their big head and they go. The general consensus is. This guy's great, you know? <laughs> totally, dude. All right, here we go. The synopsis to cut to bust it all out, mm. bust it hard. Black Panther is a Marvel comic superhero that was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby back in 1966. In 2018, the role was helmed on the big screen by Chadwick Boseman, who was iconic in the role until his unfortunate untimely passing in 2020. The new film, titled Black Panther Wakanda Forever, came out in November of 2022. But let's take a little... Not a Wayback Machine, some other kind of device, all the way to 1966. Uh, To put things into context for when this character was published in comics, a year beforehand, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law. And a few days after that, riots broke out in Los Angeles due to police violence towards African Americans. Also in 1965... 
was the formation of the Lowndes Country Freedom Organization. This was the group I was talking about just a while ago, also known as the LFCO, which sported the emblem of a Black Panther and was a bit of a predecessor to the Black Panther Party, which was officially, I believe, created, uh, established in 1967. I could be a little off on that, but I'm pretty sure it came. It did technically get established, I know, after the character first debuted. Though it is debatable, Kirby and Lee claim they were not aware of this organization when they created the character. Other people disagree, feel that they were, you know, it was it was in the mix somehow uh, in their knowledge of what was going on and maybe if it was even just kind of like subconsciously like floated in. But regardless, all this stuff came to be at once, which is a bit of a, I think, a bit of a coincidence if it, none of it was actually uh, inspired by any of the other of it. Well, there is the idea that in their favor that like uh, in all of the initial concept art that Jack Kirby produced for the character... The name attached to it was Cole Tiger, which uh, yes. is genuinely not as appealing and not as cool. No. And maybe racist a little bit. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, well, okay. Did it, was it created by an American? Yes. If the answer is yes, there's probably just a little sprinkle of something racist happening somewhere <laughs> along the way. And if it was, quote unquote, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, you know from listening to any other episode about these guys, they don't agree on who actually created them. Uh, Kirby and Lee debate who came up with the character, each believing it was solely their own creation. Probably Kirby, right, everybody? Kirby, in a 1990 interview with the Comics Journal, said, I came up with the Black Panther because I realized I had no... This is his words, not mine. I had no blacks in my strip. I'd never drawn a black. I needed a black. Suddenly, I suddenly discovered that I had a lot of black readers. My first friend was a black. And here I was ignoring them because I was associating with everybody else. As someone with uh, elderly Jewish relatives, this is unfortunately how they talk. Their hearts are in the right place. <laughs> don't don't hold it against them. <laughs> Lee's similar quote from a 1998 interview is this. I wasn't thinking of civil rights. I had a lot of friends who were black and we had artists who were black. So it occurred to me, why aren't there any black heroes? The character first appeared in Fantastic Four number 52 with uh, T'Challa gifting the team with a futuristic ship from his nation of Wakanda, an African country, of course, not impacted by racism and colonialism, which uh, which was allowed to therefore thrive. Um, anything I didn't really find much about the character design other than this interesting bit. You know, we talk about it even when it comes to the MCU character, how, you know, his face is hidden a lot mm -hmm. behind a mask. And that's not the case for a lot of other characters. Um, uh, and it is debated that, you know, he originally appeared in his design without the face mask and just a cowl. Mm -hmm. And the thinking is that they maybe did purposely give uh, add the face mask uh, for the cover and moving forward because they were concerned about that type of representation in comics. That's what some people go back and forth on. I don't know if you have anything on that or anything else. Well, Jake. the original Cold Tiger design has like a half cape, a big capital letter T on. It feels it feels like every time there's a goddamn. Uh, Jack Kirby original design for a character, whether it's Spider-Man or whatever. Like, it's always <laughs> just some freakazoid that yeah. like, definitely <laughs> would not have succeeded without somebody going in and changing things around. But uh, in a lot of uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I don't know how it, it works on your timeline, but I know that 
Black Panther joins the Avengers within a couple of years of his first appearance. And uh, a big part of his uh, story, especially once Roy Thomas, Roy the boy, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the the heir apparent after Stan the Man Lee's uh, tenure, uh, had to do with the fact that, like, in the universe of, Mar- of Marvel Comics, the average person on the street did not know that Black Panther was black, and he had to, like, come out as a black person. Mm. And according to legend, uh, there was an original cover of him unmasking himself, or, like, ah. half-masked, half his face and that was rejected by Marvel supposedly because they did not want the hit in sales that a uh, having a black man's face on the cover of your comic book would receive. Well, here's another example of concerns they had around the introduction of the character um, after the Black Panther Party was established, not very long <laughs> after the character was introduced. Stan Lee decided to change the name of the character to the Black Leopard, which only lasted for like a couple of issues, but it was actually him trying to distance himself from the politics at the time. So obviously there was a lot of inside baseball happening when it came to, you know, how they were putting this character out, what how they were handling it and concerns they had about offending certain groups or or mishandling the character or or, or connecting them to, you know, um, affiliations they weren't necessarily wanting to connect them to, at least at the time. Luckily, we kind of bring the character into that stuff uh, Not uh, another like decade later. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that was uh, definitely a thing. And Black Leopard, not as catchy, I would say. I think it uh, makes a lot more sense. Plus, I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of Black Leopards in the, it's, you know, in the wild. Um, much uh, unlike the Black Panthers I regularly yeah, yeah, uh, encounter on my walk to the coffee shop, for, for, for instance. I'm well, always you know, seeing this. they escaped off that shipping crate back in the 80s, <laughs> and they just yes. took, like, goddamn uh, kudzu weeds. You can't go across the street without having to shoo away a bunch of <laughs> panthers here on these God-given shores of America. They, they definitely establish for the character the, quote, n- neither for nor against. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely trying to say, like, they're trying to stay out of it, which is hilarious to me in 2022, because I tried to stay out of it for so long, guys. Uh, and then a lot of stuff happened like eight years ago, <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of forced everybody's hand. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, so I totally get the that as an innocent approach, but in hindsight, it's like, come on, guys. Uh, so uh, uh, this is actually a really great quote from uh, Adilifu Nama, author of Super Black, American Pop Culture and Black Superheroes, about the character at the time. What makes the Black Panther such a significant figure in American pop culture, as well as black popular culture, is its groundbreaking representation of blackness as more than a stereotypical and racist trope of inferiority. We have to keep in mind the historical context of the superhero's first emergence. In 1966, against the backdrop of civil rights and burgeoning black power movement, that becomes important because in many ways, the emergence of a black superhero marks a racial transformation happening on a political and social level. And it is 
is kind of wild to think, but you know, it was it was really revolutionary to have a black character in comics that yeah wasn't supporting any of those tropes, and at a time when I think there was a lot of um, let's just say American racists that were trying to constantly you know even even with the black panther party in itself because they were more you know aggressive and things like that trying to paint this picture of the of this kind of like less lesser than human um in these really gross ways so i another early black panther story once he's part of the avengers uh involves him uh this is actually part of the same plot line where he had to uh, unmask himself and the cover got uh, rejected is uh, he was fighting, I think they're called like the Serpent Society or like the Snake Dudes or something, but it's this like heavily uh, kind of obscured reference to like the KKK or like some other white supremacist cabal. And uh, it is revealed after the end of this lengthy plot line that it kind of puts the kibosh in the character for a couple of years. Uh, after the Black Panther, uh, you know, uh, literally uh, like borderline abdicates his throne, becomes a school teacher in Harlem uh, with his social worker girlfriend and like takes the name Charlie. Uh, again, very weird choices that it turns out the uh, the the evil snake squad was run by both a white supremacist and an anti-racism activist because they both make money off the conflict. Both <laughs> sides are weird and bad. Like, it's just kind of like, okay, way to save your bottom line. Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All these efforts to toe the line. And luckily, though, uh, or fortunately, they do get political eventually. And that is in 1973. And that is very much uh, thanks to the writer Don McGregor. Oh, man. Yeah. This is good if you stuff. ever have a chance to listen to him IRL, like he's still alive. He's 77 years old. He is such an animated and like passionate, weird nerd man. I love listening to him talk and talk about this era yeah. in comic books. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Yeah, McGregor is that guy who actually stood up and, and said something eventually. And finally, McGregor worked several odd jobs, got several letters to the editor inclusions on different Marvel comic titles, some of his first early works in print. He got into comics first with horror comics tales, of course, because that was all the rage at the time, uh, and eventually landed a gig as a proofreader for Marvel Comics in 1972. 
McGregor said, I came to Marvel Comics because I loved Marvel Comics. As the line burgeoned, one of my jobs was to read all the reprint titles. One of the titles was Jungle Action. That's right, everybody. Jungle Action, a collection of jungle genre comics from the 1950s, which is where Black Panther ends up landing eventually um, uh, after, you know, throughout the, after his Fantastic Four stuff and everything. Uh, And uh, yeah, this mostly, uh, going back to his quote, mostly detailing white men and women saving. Africans or being threatened by them. I voiced a lament that I thought it was a shame that in 1973 Marvel was printing these stories and couldn't we have a a black African hero? Now, it was one of those unwritten rules that if you worked in editorial you would be given things to write to supplement that $125 a week. It was at such a meeting that I learned I would be given Jungle Action and with the Black Panther to write. Uh, The result was The Panther's Rage. This ran from 1973 to 1976 and first took T'Challa back to Africa, where he took part in stories featuring mostly all black people, getting away from the sort of white savior in the jungle type tales that were more likely to run at the time. And more importantly than that, even T'Challa and his lady Monica took a trip to the American South in January of 1906, where they end up kicking the shit out of the clan. That's right. Well, this actually ended up getting the series canceled because up until this point, and McGregor actually breaks down a lot of this in his foreword to the Marvel Masterworks collection of his work in the Jungle Action series, which it still feels weird just saying the word jungle action. I know. It's, <laughs> but ugh. really, uh, he kind of got past everything by kind of keeping his head down and just working in secret because nobody really cared about this comic. And uh, the Marvel bullpen was such a clusterfuck of like backstabbing and like power positioning that as soon as he showed up and just people realized he wasn't gunning for the editor-in-chief position, they just kind of let him slide. And so uh, he was the only one that took this directive to add new material to these reprint books as a serious writing challenge. The man genuinely has a passion for writing and he wanted to make sure that the stories he were telling was something people hadn't seen before, that he was taking angles that people hadn't seen before. And he was working with artists such as uh, one of the few black artists uh, in comics working at the time, Billy Graham, which ironically enough, he met at a early comic book convention after he had heckled the publisher of a horror uh, anthology and he was like, uh, the publisher was like, all right, wise guy, name one bad story I've ever published. And he names the story. And the publisher's like, oh, yeah, well, you tell the artist to his face that uh, his work sucks. And it was uh, McGregor that was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just said the story was bad. The art's amazing. <laughs> and that's how he became friends with Billy Graham. And the two collaborated often. Billy Graham talks about how McGregor would show up at his house and do like all the cool panther poses that he wanted in the book. He had an unprecedented like amount of care and control for these stories that were just supposed to be like just kind of value added backups. He even went so far on several issues to um, enlist the help of just any friend he had in the comics uh, world to create supplemental material so that many issues wouldn't even have those cringy, weird, like Tarzan stories in the back. Like he, he really wanted this to be as good of a title as possible. 
And I read the first issue where they introduce Killmonger, who is just a fucking monster badass who just is yeah, like... Yeah, of course, Killmonger 2, uh, played by Michael B. Jordan in the first film, and it, he does an amazing job as well. And it breaks down, like, a large supporting cast of, like... Uh, T'Challa's court, you know, we have his communications director, his defense secretary, like all of these characters all interacting with each other, telling this like epic tale of warring tribes. Um, I, I Is this when M'Baku gets in, gets invented? I know he creates the white gorilla tribe, but I'm not sure if that's if he shows up yet. But the book doesn't sell intensely well, but the fans that do read it are intensely loyal. It has some of the most fan letters per sales in the entire company. And it wasn't until he finally, until McGregor really starts pushing it by addressing actual racial issues in America that uh, the editors finally like take notice and actually go like, hey, you got to tamp this down. Uh, Also by this time, Jack Kirby came back to the series and wanted to kind of like do his own take on it, which uh, in classic late Jack Kirby fashion is kind of just like a lot of a lot of weird nonsense. There's magical frogs. There's just hyper color <laughs> gangsters. There's a lot of just like uh, it's later referenced as like this as uh, kind of Black Panther's weirder years. <laughs> Yeah, especially when the magical frogs end up becoming, you know, turn it, it turns out they're all also clansmen, which was weird. It was just like, I don't understand no, that. No, see, take yeah, either. they like, they backed off on the clansmen stuff and doubled down <laughs> on like aliens <laughs> and robots and gugas and bingleborps and all sorts of insanity. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, McGregor also, yeah. Uh, we already kind of covered that. Never mind. Um, so even though Jungle Action is expertly written and drawn uh, as a 200-page epic all told, it did end up with low sales and the character struggled to find its footing in, in those years. As you said, Jake, uh, with various writers and pencilers taking a crack at it um, and really doesn't pick back up until Christopher Priest Panther. But it should just be noted that you know, the importance of that representation in comic books at the time with, with him battling the clan and everything. Uh, you know, I, I really, I really love this. It's, it's a quote from Gregory L. Reese for popmatters.com. I feel like summed it up really well. Some of us were changed, are changing for the better. We hope though the how and why is sometimes a mystery, maybe because of Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn or because of scouts, clear voice and to kill a mockingbird. Maybe it was the courage of Rosa Parks, the resounding eloquence of Dr. King for me. I think it started here when I was just a boy. I came in from the Alabama heat and the Alabama clay. I opened an ice cold bottle of Coca-Cola and read Marvel comics. I read McGregor's and Graham's tales of the Black Panther. I read about the evils of the Ku Klux Klan. I saw the burning cross of fear and intimidation. This one with the panther hung on it. A black Jesus, an African Christ. I read about old Caleb Horton, Monica's enslaved ancestor. I saw how he was intimidated and murdered by the men under the hoods. Then I saw Caleb's story with Monica's hopeful eyes. How she imagined things might have been different had the panther come to the South, not in 1976, but in 1876. I saw justice and injustice in black and white. And I think that's like so, you know, that like these stories just weren't being told, Mm -hmm. you know, to kids and young people. 
And so it's just a really beautiful thing. But uh, yeah, then we got Magic Frogs for like 10 years. And then we end up with Christopher Priest's uh, run on the Panther in the late 90s, which picked it back up largely because it is the first black writer that was brought onto the project. It took until the late 90s for that to happen. Christopher Priest, um, he was actually also the first black writer editor in mainstream comics, period. Uh, He started out as an intern at Marvel Comics in 1978 and joined the editorial staff in 1979 working on Crazy Magazine, which I'd never heard of. That was Marvel's answer to Mad Magazine. It's the RC Cola to uh, yeah. Pepsi's Cracked to Coca-Cola's yeah. Mad. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and he was also working as, uh, he was an assistant on the Conan books at the time. Uh, and he had his writing debut on a miniseries for The Falcon, another black character in Marvel's stable, before moving on to Spider-Man as well as Green Lantern for DC Comics. Christopher Priest said, My Black Panther was way colder, more aloof, withdrawn, and unknowable in a lot of ways. This take was also based on the fact that Priest always wanted to do Batman, but he never got the chance. So we just like did it with Black Panther. He just like turned him into Batman. So this was part of the Marvel Knights line. This was Joe Quesada's kind of uh, dark and gritty uh, kind of uh, rebirth period for Marvel after the big collector crash of of the earlier 90s. And uh, Priest is like you know, an old head when it comes to uh, the Marvel universe. And he did a lot of things that kind of really like he understood that for the mostly alienated white dude audience of comic books, especially of that era, it really like it was a project to actually incorporate him into the larger Marvel universe and sell the character to that audience before other creators and other audiences can find him. And uh, one of the things he did was he introduced the character of Everett Ross, uh, the Martin Freeman character from the movies. And so a lot of those early stories are told from his perspective as he's just supposed to be like watching over this foreign dignitary only to watch in awe as he like dangles guys off roofs and has cool gadgets and has like all this vibranium tech and is like just bouncing around global event to global event. And that really just like ups the cool factor for Black Panther, seeing him through a white doofus guy's eyes and having like the enormity of this character and what he represents kind of presented through that perspective was like uh, from a marketing from a marketing move, genuinely uh, like a great idea. And uh, it also had uh, Mark Teixeira as, on artwork, which, you know, just rippling muscle, just sinew and violence pouring out of every frame of the guy. Like he he made his way into the top tier of Marvel characters because you got to see he is a king. He has like better tech than Mr. Fantastic. He has a like a strict code of justice. He has like a higher calling. He has ancestors dating back thousands of years that empower him like all yeah. this rad shit that for and to a lesser extent he you know it was a shallower kind of look at the character but just so that like because from day 1 the black panther was also like kind of a homework assignment and like had to have a message behind it and priest really uh not only like showed the character to be this power fantasy but just kind of like 
gave him the cachet that he needed to like stand toe to toe with characters like Batman, like Spider-Man, like any other character that a kid who's like just in a messy bedroom just wants to be like, I wish I was strong and confident and cool like that. (laughs) Priest also introduces later in his run uh, a kind of riff on the Jack on on the uh, Kirby Black Panther by introducing a time warped version of the character. And they refer to him as Happy Pants Black Panther. Yeah, yeah, I got a quote here about that from Priest. He was originally this wonderful inventor with all these little toys. He was a formidable opponent who beat all of the Fantastic Four single-handedly. That's the guy. I wouldn't mind writing that guy. They were very enthusiastic about it. They also wanted me to inject some humor into it because Black Panther had been so serious. I didn't want to make him funny, but I didn't mind putting funny people around him. It took off from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Priest take also diverged from him in the traditional superhero role in certain ways. He said, Black Panther is a guy wearing a lead overcoat, which represents responsibility to his people. He's not allowed to think much about himself or do much for himself. His uh, main responsibility is Wakanda. It occurred to me that Marvel had been playing him as a superhero for a long time, but he's not really a superhero. That's a theme I adopted. So like you said, he's like more, he's a king. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's Priest's take. Once you get into the 2000s, uh, you've got uh, Reginald Hudlin, who took over writing for the character. Reginald is known for directing the House Party movies, mm-hmm. as well as Boomerang, starring Eddie Murphy. And one of Hudlin's big plot points was having T'Challa marry Storm from the X-Men. Hudlin said, I was like, if you could let the two biggest black superheroes in the history come together, that would be the ultimate power marriage in every sense of the term. He's the king of a country. She's a prince of an African nation. She's the leader of the mutants, which is a powerful minority in itself. It just seemed like a really perfect idea. It was a priest that technically introduced this uh, angle, but Hudlin also had a lot of fun with the Dora Milaje which is the uh, female warriors that are kept close to uh, the panther in the world Uh, of Wakanda. Definitely get in the movies, yeah. The adored ones, uh, based on actual... uh, like tribes of female warriors that were present in African kingdoms in the past. Uh, They just bring a whole nother level of courtly intrigue and power dynamics and all sorts of like, you know, just really fleshing out the actual culture of Wakanda and helped like make this... A, uh, a a breathing world, a fantasy realm uh, on the level of something like Middle Earth or Narnia or any other like fantastical trope hodgepodge fantasy universe that you can like tell stories in. Yeah, I think he also he also talks about he wanted to take away a little bit of the we'll say tokenism of the black hero in comics. Uh, by, what I mean by this is uh, summed up by a quote from him. I wanted to write the stories I always wanted to see, but never saw. I always thought, well, surely the black heroes get together and talk. <laughs> what would Luke Cage and T'Challa say to each other? No one had ever done that. So I was dying to do that. I was dying to explore big and small things that were obvious to me. You know, one of my favorite story arcs was in response to Hurricane Katrina, the Black Panther, Cage, Blade, and a whole host of black heroes come together to save a black city it was just fun to do and uh because i said well why 
doesn't this happen? Six white superheroes get together all the time, and it's not a racial issue. They just happen to be six white people. So why can't six black people come together and save the people just as well? And I thought that was really, really cool and crazy that it takes all the 2000s to be like, yeah, we can have more than one black hero in in a you know in a story, and it's not like this crazy you know this crazy thing to do. Hudlin also introduces the character of uh, T'Challa's sister Shuri as this whip smart kind of techno genius that has her own ideas of uh, how the country should be run. Um, and it, in general, this is when like I started seeing more black fans like actually really point to Black Panther as this like cool hero, as this like top tier hero and kind of he, the character kind of comes into their own as just a truly marquee figure within the Marvel universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Around the same time, you know, basically any Wakanda is now a player in any big Marvel event, whether it's secret invasion, secret wars, anything that comes, you know, during the two thousands, Marvel loved their big event books. And it was always a big, you know, uh, T'Challa's in the Illuminati. Now any major like happening in the universe the Black Panther is someone to watch and somebody you have to keep track of. After Hudlin, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote for the character, who has written a lot about race in the past, including a powerful work called Between the World and Me, which is in the format of a letter to his teenage son about what it means to be black in America. Coates said, the question about race is ultimately just a question about power. It really is. It's how human beings organize themselves around power, how they exploit, how they use it. That is at the heart of the comic book. The dudes in this mythical country, Wakanda, where everybody's black. So obviously you don't have the same context of race, but certainly the issues of power, of organizing power are still there. So that was kind of an interesting take and a way to bring that awkwardness of it. No, no, no. It's just this kingdom in Africa that doesn't exist, that never was oppressed, uh, back to the issues of racism in in the world. In an interview I watched with Tanahasi, he basically just boils down to as soon as he got the call from Marvel, which, you know, every nerd, he was an Atlantic columnist uh, up until that point. But once you get the call from Marvel and like, I don't care how uh, accomplished and fancy you are, you immediately go like, oh boy, (laughs) (laughs) I hope I can shake hands with Spider-Man. He just immediately like was like, well, the one thing that always bothered me about Black Panther is, you know, Wakanda is this technical utopia and yet they still have a king, which is the oldest and most brutal form of government in ancient history. And so what do you, what actually happens with that? And so he brilliantly kind of takes a lot of the events before that. You know, he tussles with Namor and Dr. Doom. The he At this point in the history, uh, Black Panther like n- renders all the vibranium inert. That's just a thing that happened in the lore of the comics at that point. And so there's an actual like civil uprising and he has to like, you know, delegate and Shuri, uh, she died, but she comes back uh, at this point. And the uh, Dora Milaje uh, also are like having their own struggles. And uh, it's through this run that at, at the very least, as it relates to the movie, the idea of Wakanda actually consisting of this conglomeration of tribes that actually needs a lot of like, consensus to move ahead on any individual act that really features in the first Black Panther movie, like every tribe's loyalties and like how they choose their leaders and how uh, they kind of interact with each other is a huge part of that movie. 
that is uh, one of the first things that uh, Coates kind of uh, brings to the series. And uh, also the artist, Brian Stelfreeze, really just like uh, kind of fleshes out and makes the world of Black Panther this beautiful place. He does this amazing thing where in costume as the Black Panther, T'Challa is just this rippling Adonis statue, just this like perfectly chiseled figure that stands like almost uh, 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 awkwardly separate from all of the humanistic, rounded, flawed humans that he chose to populate uh, Wakanda with, and it creates this very uh, serious idea of a leader alienated from his people and how he can like find a way to not only represent uh, people's hopes and, and dreams and fears, but also like rediscover his human side. And that's all happening on the art, which is uh, amazing mm-hmm. work by Stelfreeze. Hell yeah. Well, shall we get into the film? I, I'm So all that being said, uh, finally... Finally, Marvel Studios happens to uh, save the company from many different forms of bankruptcy with their bold new self-producing style of filmmaking where they're like, hey, instead of just selling the rights to a movie studio that has no idea what the fuck to do with these characters that we have spent an actual hundred years trying to showcase what makes them appealing, why don't we just make the movies? And after Iron Man and Captain America and Ant-Man and Hulk, several Hulks, it's time for the Black Panther to get a movie. Yeah, for sure. But actually, the talks of this started way back in 1992 because Wesley Snipes wanted to lead the charge. Uh, it was almost made with him in the lead. Uh, he, you know, had it not been for Blade Three conflicting with that, uh, and then uh, later him getting incarcerated for failing to t- uh, to file tax return, he might have helmed the role. Snipes did not like the way Africa was depicted in Hollywood films. He wanted to change that with Wakanda and T'Challa. After that, different folks, of course, were attached then dropped from a potential project with uh, Figi finally announcing in uh, 2014 the, that the movie would be released in 2017 with Chadwick Boseman cast in the lead. Bozeman wasn't, uh, well, let's get into his life a little bit here. Bozeman wasn't initially drawn to acting, instead getting into martial arts as a kid and wishing to become an architect. While in high school, he played basketball and could have gone to college to do just that, but chose the arts instead as he also wrote his first play in his junior year called Crossroads, which is about a classmate who had been shot and killed. After high school, he went to Howard University to study writing and directing and only did acting initially in order to understand how to better communicate with an actor from the director role and ended up just being really fucking good at it. During his college years, he also got to go to Ghana in Africa with a professor to study various performance approaches there and referred to it as, quote, one of the most significant learning experiences of my life. After college, he moved to Brooklyn, and for the first few years there, he made a name for himself both as a playwright and a stage actor. He started doing television in 2003, and early on, he ended up being fired from the show All My Children after he confronted the producers there about his character being rife with black stereotypes, including the character's father being absent and both his parents being drug addicts. Uh, In 2008, Bozeman moved to Los Angeles. And oh, by the way, I think he was replaced with Michael B. Jordan. I'm pretty sure that's what happened there, too, just to make it even weirder coincidence. Yeah, yeah. 
In 2008, Bozeman moved to Los Angeles where he immediately got work in film and television, but his breakthrough didn't come until 2013 when he starred as Jackie Robinson in the film 42, which Jackie Robinson's widow said was like seeing her husband again. Wow. And that's kind of where we start with this like tr- he's so transformational in these roles and it's really between that and his turn as James Brown in the film Get On Up that convinced Marvel producers that he was perfect for the role based on this just incredible talent they were seeing. And so they attach him. He gets brought in. There's his whole deal up to that point. Uh, you also then have, to complete this, Ryan Coogler, uh, who got attached. Uh, he, he took his first trip to Africa in preparation for the gig, v- got very, very invested. Coogler, uh, going back to his, his uh, you know, getting into his career, Coogler went to college on a football scholarship with a major in chemistry, but the football team were encouraged to take creative writing courses. So kind of similar to Bozeman a little bit in that. And his teacher for, uh, for that saw a lot of potential in his work, convinced him to look into screenwriting. So he went on to take film classes. He gets a master's at the USC School of for Cinematic Arts, uh, where he made sh- four short films, which went on to get notoriety and win awards. And his first feature-length film uh, was called Fruitville Station, starring a uh, young Michael B. Jordan. This ends up being a breakout moment for both the actor and director. The film is based on a true story about a man who was killed by a police officer in a subway station. And that that really cements their bond. And he's starting to just tell these really powerful stories. He continues to work with Jordan on his second project, Creed, which is a spinoff of the Rocky films, and also was a critical and audience darling. And for this project, Coogler managed to bring a bunch of his own people, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Uh, this is very rare for a Marvel film. He got Fruitville Station director of photography, Rachel Morrison. Hannah Beachler, who did production design on Creed, and his longtime editor, Michelle Sawyer, as well. Uh, he also, the composer was from his, his working crew. Uh, Kugler said, for me in retrospect, <clears throat> for me in retrospect, I realized a lot of what I deal with as an artist is with themes of identity. I think it's something common among African Americans. For us, we've got a strange circumstance in terms of our view of ourselves. Production designer Hannah Beachler had an interesting challenge to visualize a culture sadly not seen often in the real world. She said it was such a challenge because knowing that this is a nation that had never been colonized and never experienced slavery, there's a lot of representation for that anywhere in the world. There were many nights and days where I kept myself awake for work. It was a large responsibility to be the one defining the narrative. And that's another fascinating thing to think about. There's just not a culture... That's how special Wakanda is as a symbol, mm-hmm. you know, because there's just nothing quite like it in existence, sadly. There's a great interview with uh, 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 Hot 97, I think, uh, did it. I, what am I saying? I think Rosenberg was there. It was definitely Hot 97. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting because, you know, they want, you know, they were talking to him about this was right before Black Panther came out and uh, Kugler is talking about, you know, oh, you know, I was playing football and uh, I, then I made this movie, Fruitvale Station, and they got excited. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Forrest Whitaker discovered you, right? Because Forrest Whitaker actually produced Fruitvale Station after meeting with Kugler. And uh, he was like, well, I mean, you know, it was while I was still in college, it was the creative writing teacher that actually, like, 
you know, because I was going to be a chemistry major. I thought I'd go to med school if football didn't work out. And they're like, OK, so she's the one who got you started. And he was like, I mean, I get, well, I, when you want to break it down, uh, my wife, who was my girl at the time, uh, I was writing my first script in Microsoft Word and I couldn't get the formatting to work. And she was the one who uh, saved up and paid for my first copy of Final Draft. And so I guess she's the one who got me started, which was, I found, a very endearing story. Uh, but yeah, he talks about visiting Africa, uh, filming in South Africa, and just going all over the continent. And like, uh, he wouldn't say a word. He would just like walk through streets and go to events and just like exist as an African, or at least exist outside of whatever like idea of uh, his American experience would uh, project onto others. And he would just like, he found it like weirdly familiar and strange at the same time. He, it's, it left a profound impact on him. And it, uh, it's interesting that he brought all these people from Fruitvale station to the production of black Panther. And the only people that, uh, weren't really, uh, from his circle was the special effects team. And I'd say that's one of the weakest, uh, things about uh -huh. the movie. Yeah. Apparently they wanted, Black Panther, they wanted the character Black Panther to be all physical suit with just extra effects, but uh, there was just so much kind of like high-flying choreography happening that the seams would bust on the suit. Oh, right. I forgot the suit was a whole weird thing everybody freaked out about. I'm just remembering that now. Well, the, the finale of the movie where it's just two CGI Ken dolls in Black Panther suits just slapping together in that like weird underground mind thing, like... It really, mm -hmm. it was the effects team just like decided, and I still don't get it, that like the movie would look better if they just replaced all of uh, the costume characters with CGI models so that they didn't have to go in and like make sure that the tights didn't like poke out of the helmet in every shot. Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. It's It was like... Obviously, the movie, you know, it's it, it is not the first nor the last movie where sometimes the CG takes you out of it a little. But it is interesting that like the one thing he couldn't control is the part that sticks out. BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The costume designer Ruthie Carter was an, has an incredible resume, by the way. Films like Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing and a ton of other Spike Lee joints, as well as Amistad and Selma. She used more than 10 different tribes from Africa to inspire for inspiration. So she could, quote, create something that honored African history, African-American history, and would also be a newfound culture that would be unique to Wakanda. It was actually Bozeman that pushed for a, the Wakandan accent. Uh, this was based on the, uh, I think it's Josa X-H-O-S-A, Josa, a language of South Africa, and the English uh, Zosha accent. Bozeman said, 
I felt there was no way in the world I could do the movie without an accent. But I had to convince the studio it was something we couldn't be afraid of. My argument was that we train the audience's ear in the first five minutes, give them subtitles, give them whatever they need. And I believe they'll follow it the same way they'll follow an Irish accent or a Cockney accent. Oh, yeah. We watch movies all the time when this happens. Why Why all of a sudden it, it is, uh, we can't follow it when it's African. Uh, yeah, I, I had no issues discerning. I'd, uh, I'd have a much harder time discerning a Cockney or Irish accent <laughs> than the 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 dialect they use. And of course, the cast is just ridiculous. A, a hall of fame of fantastic African-American actors. Michael B. Jordan, we already mentioned. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o as uh, uh, Nakia, the undercover spy for Wakanda, as well as uh, Black Panther's love interest. There's uh, T'Challa's mother, played by Angela Bassett, and Wakanda's essentially Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is played by Forrest Whitaker, previously mentioned. Letitia Wright plays T'Challa's sister, Shori. Denai Gurira, who plays a Wakandan traditionalist warrior, who is phenomenal in this. Uh, Winston Duke, the leader of Wakanda's mountain tribe. Also, though, shout outs to uh, uh, especially on the white actor side, Andy Circus fucking kills it <laughs> as Ulysses uh, Klaus. He's he's so good. I believe Andy Circus as a good as a bad guy more than I believe uh, Martin Freeman as the lovable yeah. goofy CIA. Agent. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really mention that. <laughs> Character as well. Much. I mean, it's he's there. He's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I can only imagine for some audience members they like. If we're gonna get Gollum, we need a Hobbit. I mean, it's just <laughs> as simple as that, Jake. I mean, you know, Christopher Priest was onto something. Some, you know, maybe they, uh, you know, maybe they nod at their black neighbors. Maybe they even threw up a Wakanda forever. Uh, at a Halloween party. I don't know, but sometimes an, a, a mass audience just needs a white guy to stand in the shot and just be like, this is okay. This is okay. You are you can like this. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie, it comes out at a time of great racial unrest. And, you know, kind of like when the character initially <laughs> made its way into comic books, you know, we had what... I was just like, it's America. When is there when is there racial well, rest? But it was hitting such a fever pitch. Uh, then President Donald Trump referred to places in Africa as, quote, shithole countries. You had the NFL protests against police brutality, Black Lives Matter. It was just an incredible moment to celebrate black cultures. And most importantly, it made a buttload of money. It becomes the third highest grossing film of the MCU, the highest grossing solo superhero film, making an incredible case to Hollywood to tell more stories with people of color at the helm. I think if that film had failed, there'd be some big issues right now uh, in in the MCU and Hollywood in general when it comes to this stuff that we'd still we're still I mean, we're, there's still a fight for that, but. It just made a great case for for itself. So Kugler made actually a great point that I don't see a lot in discussions of Black Panther when people point out like, oh, you know, this was such an important thing for like mass marketing of a black movie. But like Kugler grew up in the 90s. We grew up in the 90s. And there was how many blockbuster worldwide mega hits starring Wesley Snipes, Will Smith, Denzel Washington like, if anything, yeah. there was a weird lack of black-led action powerhouse blockbusters 
that had like been a part of the American pop culture landscape for decades and just kind of went away and never that mantle never really got picked back up. Yeah. And it, but also, if, you know, like, let's say Will Smith and in Independence Day or Men in Black, nobody was like writing posts online or I guess back then um, scrawling onto pages and throwing them at people. I don't know what they did for to get the word out back they then. They would pull out a scroll that said, hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> yeah. I personally have individual reasons why this is bad and therefore yeah. all of you are bad for liking a thing. Yeah, no one was like, Will Smith being the lead in Men in Black is political. It's political, you know? I mean, just no one was trying to make those cases where all of a sudden they were mm. with, you know, Captain Marvel, let's say, or whatever I mean, it is. With obviously, I am I, I checked the list. I'm actually the nine billion three hundred thousand four hundred and eighth least qualified person to be talking about this. Yeah, totally. But Full acknowledgement on that. The politics of Black Panther with Killmonger actually raising points about revolutionary anti-colonialism, yeah, whereas uh, Black Panther or T'Challa's answer to that is like, "Nah, we'll open some schools where kids can like learn to program." Is like very loaded, and I I am not qualified to like actually break that down. But it is, it's still, a, it, uh, for a mass market movie, that is like the most people can get. And the fact is, is like, uh, you know, the actual Black Panther Party, their most revolutionary act was just like a willingness to defend their communities while helping those communities outside of uh, existing structures. So like, it's a very, you know, race in America. It's a thing. Absolutely. And so's this other thing. You ready for the sad part? No. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's hear him cry. No, maybe I won't cry. We'll see. Tragically, Chadwick Boseman passed away from colon cancer in 2020 at the age of 43. He had been battling stage three colon cancer since 2016, which progressed to stage four before uh, the end, which meant he was privately dealing with the illness during the entire shoot without telling anyone. He was getting chemo. He had multiple surgeries. No one knew. Kugler, in his tribute to Bozeman, wrote, After his family released their statement, I realized that he was living in, with his illness the entire time I knew him. Because he was a caretaker, a leader. Why? I don't even know. I'm, I'm fine. A man of faith, dignity, and pride. He shielded his collaborators from his suffering. He lived a beautiful life and he made great art. Day after day, year after year. That was whatever, Jake. You don't, you know what? You're emotionally dead. So yeah. that's your problem. No, you're emotionally I, dead. You need, <laughs> it's, it's, I, it's, the fact that it, <laughs> no, okay. The fact that no one like, of the two of us has to be emotionally dead for the other one to do this, so it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. All right, admit that like there's personal sadness over his loss, but also like the artist in you, yeah, just the empathy you can feel for a collaboration and like hitting on something and actually like having that taken away from you just out of the blue is devastating even outside of like the personal loss of an individual. Well, then you add the layer on top of it, Jake, almost more than that. I'm a whiny ass bitch. And if I got cancer or knock on wood, God forbid I get cancer, you're going to fucking nice hear it. You're going to hear about it a lot. And I'm no. going to bitch about it a lot. And I'm going to not be cool about it. So when I see somebody leading with grace Wait, do you, like that. Are you saying you're not going to be like, you're going to haunt people for shit talking you after you die? Is that what you meant? No, I'm saying if I'm suffering from it, I'm going to be like oh. really annoying about it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so when I read about someone being so stoic and leading with such grace, it makes me really emotional. Like somehow you're on like uh, the last podcast movie set as like, I don't know, let's say Jeffrey Dahmer for a segment. And like, you're like, <laughs> but you're like, you have a disease. You're like suffering. But they're like, hey, Holden, can you do this line again? You're like, oh, I don't know. Dude, does my non-Hodgkin's lymphoma just care about my performance? Ah, Leave yes, me alone. Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I'll be in my trailer dying, thank you very much. And, and of course, you're right. And it's the artist thing and dying before your time. Mm. You know, when I truly feel like someone has passed away before their time, it really upsets me. He made great art. Uh, going back to Cooler's uh, uh, little tribute here. He made great art day after day, year after year. That was who he was. He was an epic firework display. I, w- I will tell stories. I will tell stories about being there for some of the brilliant sparks till the end of my days. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's just the whole thing. Honestly, it gets me really bad because he was so beloved. Yeah. You know? All right. We're We're done. We're done with the crime. Well, kind of we're done with the crying because the whole second movie... It's about grieving this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anything else you want to say about anything before we get into the sequel and wrap this up? No, I, it's uh, visually stunning. The music by uh, Kendrick Lamar with uh, additional. Oh, yeah. Shit. We didn't mention that at all. That's so good. Yeah. Go on. With uh, additional music by uh, Ludwig Goranson. And it all like kind of uses uh, a ton of like Afro beats and has all this. Uh, interesting things going on. It sounds different than any other movie. It looks different from any other movie. And like, whether you de- like on a base level or sorry, on a higher level, the like it's a whole cobweb of racial politics. But on a base level, like just anybody without like a burning inferno of hate in their heart can be like, wow, look at all this cool black people stuff. Yeah, black people are cool. Like it's it's like your even your grandma can watch this movie and be like, oh wow. <laughs> and you know, for a kid, for like every movie, uh, this is another thing from the Hot ninety seven interview. Like, um, uh, or you know what? No, this was uh, Winston Duke in an interview was talking about how his family uh, came from Tobago and he moved to Brooklyn. And when it was movie day at, in his school in Brooklyn. Uh, They'd be like, and here's a movie about black people. And it would just be crime and murder and cautionary tales and slavery. And like, he would just be like, is there any movie about us that isn't like just doused in generational pain? Can we just have like cool stuff to do? Even Killmonger like makes some okay points and is a badass. And, you know, as much as you like don't like him in the movie, it's not because he's like a drug kingpin or something, you know? Plus he was wearing that cool Vegeta armor, which you know Michael B. Jordan, goddamn weeaboo if there ever was one. (laughs) So getting into the sequel, I mean, Ryan Coogler almost completely walked away (laughs) from his career. (laughs) which is crazy. He said, I haven't grieved a loss this acute before. I spent the last year preparing, imagining, and writing words for him to say uh, that we weren't destined to see. It leaves me broken knowing that I won't be able to watch another close-up of him in the monitor again or walk up to him and ask for another take. 
He almost walks away from directing entirely, as I just said. Uh, but he said he, quote, was pouring over a lot of our conversations that we had towards what I realized was the end of his life. I realized that it made more sense to keep going. Also, I love money. <laughs> money, money. No, I'm just kidding. He did not say any of that part. Uh, and it was important, I think, to grieve in, in a sequel. For, all, for everybody to grieve in a sequel. Uh, so there was actually a petition signed by a ton of people asking Disney not to recast the role. Luckily, uh, conven- weirdly, conveniently, in the comics, Black Panther dies and someone else does end up taking the role already. <laughs> and there's a lot of, you know, part of Black Panther's powers. Black Panther has all the memories of the Black Panthers that came before him. And there's a lot, you know, of a foundation already of of replacements and and legacy and you know take moving the title on uh you know bringing the title on to the next person the entire film can be seen of course as grieving the loss of the first panther the opening scene that announces the loss of t'challa Lupita Nyong'o said, We were able to lean into each other and commiserate together about our feelings and sadness. Being together really helped us move forward. And so on, the whole cast was kind of in on this as like, we need this. Like, to just process what had happened, you know? Has that also happened at such a shit time in every in a lot of people's lives? It was like, the mi- wasn't it the middle of COVID, yeah. like madness in 2020 i mean it was just like such a weird gut punch like moment you know i mean letitia wright got into trouble because she posted like a 70 minute documentary from a christian church about how like the vaccine is like illegitimate and china sent Uh, the covid as a uh you know a weapon against america uh and you know she had to do a lot of backpedaling uh, she had to get a new representation team. Uh, you know, Angela Bassett uh, said that like she never heard Wright share any anti-vaccine statements during filming, and like she kind of like very like you know artfully kind of dodged that bullet. But yes, like j- j- but yes, the times were wrought. The times yeah. were wrought while all this was happening. And don't worry, guys. Letitia Wright gets hers in the sequel. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But she did suffer a severe injury while filming a chase sequence, which led to a fractured shoulder and a concussion. Uh, and this took a while to recover from and was a whole big thing. And obviously pretty harrowing for the cast. It was already like using this as a grieving time. Mm-hmm. So to have someone get really scarily injured was not fun, according to all counts involved. Uh, and Coogler actually looked towards a lot of 90s films for the uh, to inspire the sequels, such as Terminator 2 and uh, Contact, as well as films the films of Ridley Scott. And his reasoning for that is this. He said, the thing all those movies have in common is they take themselves seriously. Uh, so they're just having that kind of over-the-top, um, you know, uh, approach to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Jake caught it, saw it legally in a movie theater, I and paid $10 paid to get it. $10? Where the fuck do you see a movie for Sorry, $10? 15 at this point? Yeah, I don't even know. Well, you had, you had the vibrating chairs. Uh, oh, yeah. So every I time someone cried, 5D. his chair would weep. <laughs> it's uh, the new thing. It's uh, It sprays you with water during the sad parts to represent the tears. It shakes your seat during the explosions. Uh, surround sound, 3D glasses, and of course, the mysterious vacuum hose that just kind of like gives you kisses on your cheeks whenever a character gets 
gets kisses. New 5D cinema surround. This time, people will go back to the movie theaters, we promise. I believe it's the tagline. I love it. This movie, I mean, the innate, like, it feels, I, I think I might be, despite all of the intensely sincere emotions that like went into this and had to get processed for this. I it's very like, I think they just needed to recast him. I think these characters are larger than life. They're, they're like mythical beings. And even though it's, it's just very weird that our main character, like just narratively, it's very awkward having the character die off screen in the beginning of the movie and have, all of this stuff about mourning. And then there's also this whole plot about uh, Namor, which is just like, is it, it's its own movie. And so the, it just feels a little bit awkward, but like, it's still beautiful. It's still incredible. The music is still thumping. The actors are still compelling. Like, I don't regret seeing it. I'm just like, I don't know if as a movie, it'll, have the same lasting impact because mm. it is so immediately tied to a time and place of the emotions of uh, Bozeman's passing. I will say for sure. Tenoch Inescapable. Huerta is incredible as Namor. I never thought they'd yeah. be able to pull off the submanner. Yeah. And I, this is so stupid. This is so stupid. But when they act like, when they laid out uh, Atlantis in the Marvel Universe as this like sunken Mesoamerican lost tribe as kind of a mirror to the uh, African like vibes of uh, Wakanda, I thought that was brilliant. And they actually claim that his name, uh, the Submariner's name is short for Sin Amor, <laughs> like without love, which is so, I, that is like the kind of dumb reimagining bullshit that just makes my nerd heart go doki doki. I like, <laughs> loved that. Producer Nate Moore had this to say about the aspect of grief and healing in the film. It had to become part of the fabric of the storytelling because that was the truth these characters were experiencing. It was about this collective grieving process and how different people respond to that for better or for worse. And I think that is what holds the movie together. Even amidst car chases and jokes and water sequences, it's still always about the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of like a, a more pro yeah. take of what you were sa just saying just now. But, yeah, it's kind of un it's just unavoidable. Like, there's just nothing you can do about it. I think it's because they still try and do the like quippy Marvel movie stuff that it really feels a little inconsistent. It kind of right. the thing we talked about Almost in Love and Thunder. Almost if they leaned into it harder, yeah. Even it actually might have been made for a really unique and interesting one of a yes. kind experience. But the fact they're always trying to keep it in this foundation of certain aspects that make up a Marvel film, mm -hmm. it kind of, maybe kind of fucks with it a little bit. I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you are in a check your COVID charts, check your COVID data, wear a mask and go see it. It is like a very it is a it is a fine time at the movie um, or do what I did and uh, find a cheesy bootleg site. Or at this point, wait till it shows up on streaming. Uh, I do like that they gave Martin Freeman even less to do. Uh, he just kind of hangs out with Julia Louis-Dreyfus for a bunch of the movie, which cool. is very weird. Good for him. I hope they had a good time hanging out at craft services. <laughs> all right. Is that about it? I, I have nothing left. I, that That's all I got. I, ga I gave you my tears, Lottie, listening audience. I gave you my essence on this one, all right? So uh, release me from this 
tragic tale. Fascinating story. Fascinating character. Fascinating character. Fascinating arc so far to the character. Yeah, I don't know. It's great. All right. I think we're getting out of here. Thanks for joining us for our episode on the Black Panther. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For $5 a month, you get weekly bonus content and ad-free main feed episodes like this one. Did you have to skip ads while you're listening to this? Five bucks, you don't have to do it anymore. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For $15 a month, you can join us in our Discord uh, for our Sunday study session every single week. And for $20 a month, you can join my cry club. Uh, you will it's literally just, I'll be on video and comms and I'll just be sobbing and it'll be beautiful. And uh, hopefully it'll, you know, resonate with you. Uh, also check me out twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm streaming Monday through Fridays. So check me out on there. Love hanging out. I'm gaming on Thursdays in the morning or early afternoon, depending on what part of the country you are or in the middle of the night. If you're way on the other side of the world, join me for that. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Jake! Uh, Hey, folks, we're live and going on tour. That's right. If you live in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, San Francisco, L.A., or Austin, Texas, we are coming to your city. Just go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. We're going to be doing a little uh, uh, pop culture hurricane of bits and shtick with our friends over at Page 7 for a show we're calling Release the Butthole Cut. So uh, if you... If you like what we do here, come on over, say hi. There's VIP tickets so you can come over, look me dead in the face and kiss me on the forehead and I will receive your blessings. Is this a good sell? Am I selling this right? Killing it. Loving it. Thank God. Thank God. Kiss me on the forehead, live and in person. Just go to Last (laughs) Podcast Network to pick up your tickets and we will look forward to seeing you then. Follow me, Puppet Jared, on Twitch and YouTube. I'm a VTuber. I do things. Check it out. All right. There you have it. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. Black Panther. Cook all the heel off. That's no cow. This on a tuny will lead off. She cooked no soul sleep. Nash may need be beat. Take her. Oh, don't kill no wonder. So go to no hymn. It's in my mother. Panther. You black. Come on, Otoko. That's Sangat's three touch. Lord of show. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.